Welcome to Reflections on Buddhism on 90.7 FM, KSQD Santa Cruz. Reflections on Buddhism is a monthly radio show with Buddhist monastic Venerable Tenzin Choki, and it bridges the worlds of Buddhist thought and the latest research into positive psychology. I'm your host, Matthew DeVaris, and each month we'll select a topic where we can weave together Buddhist wisdom with the science of mind, and then apply these concepts to everyday life in a practical way. Welcome, Venerable. Thank you, Matthew. Great to see you. We've talked about this in past episodes, but we wanted to devote this episode to speaking directly to pluralism in America and how the rise of fundamentalism strikes at the heart of many of the values that we celebrate and and I think across both sides of the aisle are celebrated as hallmarks of our democracy and while in past episodes, we've tried to try to steer away from overtly being political as a bit of a spoiler alert, it might be quite difficult in this episode, but we will <laughs> endeavor to try. You know, I think when we think about the early days of what has become, you know, the American democracy, we think about it often in terms and it's celebrated in terms of being a melting pot of cultural, intellectual and, and racial identities. And yet, I think if you really look at some of the explicit freedoms that were in the minds of the founding fathers of the country, those freedoms were really intended largely for land-owning white Christian men. And even the principles of Manifest Destiny were founded on an idea of Christian imperialism. So as this doctrine of American exceptionalism becomes more popular, you know, it feels than ever. And I think pointing to this, some of these issues in the past is held in some circles as being deeply unpatriotic. Why is it important to understand some of these facets of our past? And why is cultivating pluralism in the present and for the future so critical? Yeah, this is such an interesting conversation. And of course, we're taping just a couple of weeks after Roe versus Wade was overturned. And I think, you know, no matter what you feel about abortion per se, this move by the Supreme Court and then a broader political movement to go back to, you know, kind of back in time requires us to reexamine exactly what you said. Like, what were some of these principles of the Founding Fathers? This whole idea that if something wasn't explicitly referred to in the Constitution, that, you know, people that weren't explicitly referred to in the Constitution don't have rights and anything that happened, you know, any of these decisions after that are up to for question is terrifying because it it really uh, means, as Justice Clarence Thomas is the most outspoken, he's very interested in overturning a lot of these rights that are extremely hard won. So I think this is such a relevant question right now. And as you say, like going back to really examining the history of the country, often we're told in school, you know, what's emphasized for us is this idea of liberty and justice for all, you know, and equal rights and all of that. But as you say, that was, you know, for Christian, white, landowning, the landowning class. The country was built and prospered on kidnapping and enslavement of Africans and genocide. And these are something 
things that are just part of our history that are now, you know, there's a, there's a whole kind of backlash about these ideas even being taught in schools. And they're clearly just historical realities and historical facts, but there's such a pushback because like, God forbid that white people feel guilty or something like that. But I think without a clear understanding of our history, right. And I found two sources that I really recommend. And I've met, you know, I think I've mentioned the first one before on our show, there's a, a group out of Duke university, a podcast series. It's called seen on radio S C E N E seen on radio. And they have various episodes. One is called the land that have never has been yet, which is taken from a Langston Hughes poem examining exactly what you're talking about, kind of the founding fathers, the principles that this country was was uh, founded on, you know, and explicitly being to, you know, there was a whole section of the Constitution that was an anti-slavery section of the Constitution written by Thomas Jefferson, who is a very complicated figure in terms of his relationship to slavery, but a very strongly worded section of the Constitution that was taken out to placate mostly the Southern states. You know, even at the time of the writing of the Constitution, there were big divisions already within the colonies about things like slavery, but that was taken out to placate the South. There's another incredible documentary, uh, Jeffrey Robinson, who was a lawyer and one of the administrators of the American Civil Liberties Union for many decades. And then he's devoted the recent years to this, this project called the Who We Are Project. And there's a recent documentary that I think is streamable. I don't know if it's Netflix or one of the services. It's called Who We Are by Jeffrey Robinson. Really incredibly well-researched again, the historical context of, of the country, just really looking at it to, you know, because if we don't look at the truth of these ideas, the idea of going back to, you know, the way things were becomes very dangerous for groups that aren't included in white heterosexual Christian <laughs> landowning class, unless we really realize that that was you know, what some of these founding documents explicitly were written to, to you know, endorse the rights of, of those people. Because, of course, more recent cultural values of gender and racial equality, more recently, equal rights for LGBTQIA folks that were incredibly hard won, and in some cases, results of decades and decades of struggle will be reversed with the stroke of a pen of the Supreme Court justices. And so this is really what we're talking about here is, you know, these hard won rights. So the rise of this explicit Christian white nationalism and the way that it's entering into our politics is incredibly dangerous. And I want to mention here you know, I'm not talking about Christianity in general. I'm definitely not anti-Christian. It's a beautiful tradition. But these fringe Christian views that kind of join Christianity with far-right politics and white nationalism is what I think is so dangerous. And even though they're in the fringe now, we've seen how influential they can be. And with elected leaders, I mean, I'm thinking of Marjorie Taylor Greene as an example, and there's many more examples 
these fringe Christian views that are actually condemned by most mainline Christian churches and many faith leaders. In fact, there's also, a, you know, an uprising of these mainstream faith leaders speaking out going, wow, like this is hijacking Christianity in the service of politics in this very distorted way to support this political agenda. So I'm not at all suggesting that Christianity in general is at all at fault, but it's kind of this mixture of, you know, these Christian values. And why this is so dangerous is that if you don't fit that demographic, are all your rights going to be taken away? I mean, that's the real danger. If you're of a religious minority or if you're a gender identity, you know, that's different. If you, you know, if you are a racial minority, I mean, we've seen that already in cases like the Muslim ban, you know, which is was seen as happening in the service of national security, but no evidence at all that Muslims in general are in any way dangerous, you know, so things like this. And I think it's really, we need to not tiptoe around these issues, but it's really time as we've seen, you know, with some of the recent Supreme Court decisions, it's, it's, a, it's a really pivotal time for us for equal rights in our country. And I think digging into history to understand the historical perspective is really important. And just, you know, all of us kind of banding together to speak out, to keep these fringe ideas fringe and not allow them to enter into the mainstream. And for that, it's really important to understand the appeal of these ideas to a broader segment of the population, right? They might seem fringe now, but as many of these fringe ideas that seem like, oh, no, you know, nobody's going to address that. Why are they appealing to, to the mainstream is something I think we need to investigate. And we'll talk about that more in this, in this episode. One of the implicit values on which the country was, was founded was this idea of separation in church and state, which for many of the predecessors of the founding fathers was a very unique concept coming from Europe where church and state were intertwined and informed each other in very complicated and very long-standing long-standing ways. And, you know, I think even something like the Pledge of Allegiance is held up as a demonstration that separation of church and state doesn't mean that church and state are separated because God is referenced in the Pledge of Allegiance. But of course, that only happened in 1954 when Eisenhower sort of wanted it and lobbied Congress to have it included as a way of sort of demonstrating that America was a Christian nation and that non-Christians were sort of un-American in the same way at the time that communists, because of the, the you know, the, how strongly atheism is was prescribed in communism, that this was somehow a, a stance against communism in, in some kind of misguided way. And yet... We're seeing so much of these, as you've referenced, these Christian values being turned in, not only in the reversal of Roe versus Wade, but in, you know, the Florida law of don't say gay. And yet I think these this sort of Christian nationalism on the extremes doesn't really seem to, I don't know, it just doesn't seem to belong to my fairly limited understanding of what Christian values are in the first time. And, you know, I, you've spoken a bit about this already, but how is this? Um, you know, why is this so dangerous in your, in your view? 
Yeah. So I think it really points to this underlying narrative that I think it feels has quite a broad appeal that the United States somehow belongs to white heterosexual Christians, right? And that, you know, everyone else is somehow not, does not belong, is an invader. You know, one extreme is this so-called replacement theory and the sort of conspiracy theory that people on the political left are trying to bring in, you know, brown people from south of the border to somehow replace the white people that the country belongs to. But obviously, this is not just one crazy person who believes this, even though apparently, you know, there's a talk show host who talks about it all the time. But somehow this idea has broad appeal. But I think it goes down to the root of some of our basic needs. And I think this is the key to understanding some of these things. It doesn't really work for us to say, oh, these crazy people where, you know, they're just nuts. We have to look at what is the underlying need that is being fulfilled by some of these ideas as a way to address it. We all have a need for belonging. We all have a need to feel that we belong to some group. And I think what's happening now, because there is this underlying narrative of who the United States belongs to that goes all the way back to the founding fathers and carries on as a through line. This isn't some fringe new idea. This is like based in some of those founding documents, carries on as a through line and people feel threatened, even without evidence that their job is being taken away, their rights are being taken away, you know, their their literal land is being somehow taken away by the other that the land doesn't even belong to because they're not, you know, the dominant social group. So it's just this sort of primal fear of losing that which you believe is rightfully yours. So that's why like all the evidence to the contrary doesn't really have an impact and doesn't really convince. I mean, all the statistics in the world, all of the you know, all of these ideas of like, no, nobody, it isn't some vast conspiracy, because it's an emotional reaction to a feeling of threat of losing what you think is rightfully yours. So that's the part I think that in order to even have the conversation, we have to drop down to that level of, oh, where does that feeling come from? And how to assuage the feeling of threat, you know, and that's why these people with with these fringe ideas have so much appeal because they're appealing to an emotion that people are having that comes from an underlying need being threatened. And I think that's the level that we have to start having the conversation at that level and not arguing about statistics and how many of what kind of people are living where and all of that. Yeah. Yeah. I can speak from a great deal of personal experience that the argument around the statistics just doesn't doesn't yeah. end well and ends up with a lot of elevated blood pressure and red faces yes. and shouting but no no changed yeah. minds the fact that we really largely lack a uh, public media in the same way that most european countries have state funded robust yes. news sources yeah and you know, you can see quite easily how 
the media has fallen into one of two camps and certainly on social media, just with the algorithms, really knowing in, I think, just such a pernicious way, the fact that if they can feed me content that makes me feel self-righteous and angry uh, towards the other, I'm going to be much more likely to buy something from an advertiser, which Mm, is, is shocking to me, but I can see how, you know, just as much. And unfortunately it's easy to see in my case on the, on the side of the right wing, it's very easy to see how they're being fed the Kool-Aid and drinking the Kool-Aid. It's not so easy to see how I'm being on fed the, the Kool-Aid. Yeah, yeah that's Kool-Aid. right. Yeah. And I think the danger, I mean, all of the dangers of this, like I say, it seems fringe, but we've seen it play out already. I mean, like I mentioned, the Muslim ban, you know, framed in terms of national security. And some of these things could unfold much more explicitly it's already happening more and more. Just last week, the New York Times ran an article, and the title of the article was The Far-Right Christian Quest for Power. We are seeing them emboldened. I mean, that was the New York Times, a news source that some people say is far left, but I think is pretty centrist and balanced in its view. And I think this is so dangerous because then if there are people that feel then threatened because they're not of that dominant view. I had an experience. It was the morning after the 2016 election, a morning many of us probably in the Santa Cruz community remember well. And I remember going down and I was living at a Buddhist center in the Santa Cruz mountains. And I went down and it was sort of like awake, you know, everybody was just in shock. And I was sitting having lunch with a couple of the residents of that center. And one resident was a transgender man. One was a Mexican immigrant. One was a young woman. And then there's me, a clergy of not the dominant religion. And these young people, all three of the the other people I was with were young. And they were kind of looking to me for some kind of reassurance about what had just happened. You know, that literally, like they weren't going to end up in some kind of camp because of their identity. And meanwhile, I'm like, hey, I could end up in some kind of camp because of my head. And it was the strangest feeling. And I'll never forget that I didn't feel like I could really reassure them that that wasn't somewhere down the road. It's happened in so many countries in the last hundred years, including ours, that people literally have ended up in some camp because of their identity. It happened during World War II. It's happening now at the border. And so this may seem extreme and like hyperbole, what's much less extreme, but much more possible is just this stripping of rights and feeling of othering that becomes emboldened by this movement, you know, even down to who's included, who's hired for jobs, who feels just a feeling of inclusion. My goddaughter is Black, and when she she was in high school right after, during the 2016 election, she was in, except for her, an all-white Waldorf school. So she was the only Black student, one of the few students of color of, of all. I think there were some Asian American students, and there was her. She had this profound shift that happened in her schooling after the election that these other students felt emboldened to, for example write the N-word on her school locker. 
And the school administration called that free speech and didn't do anything to the students that did that. They wouldn't have done that before. There was a rise in hate crimes after the 2016 election. She ended up just being homeschooled for her last semester before she graduated because she couldn't be in school anymore. She felt such a sense of threat. So these things have already happened. And, you know, with, with this movement, I think they have much more of a probability of happening more and more. So that's, it's a real danger. I mean, you know, one extreme is we end up in camps, but very real and happening on a daily basis is kids being bullied in school, people being not hired, people feeling other, just, just that, you know, overarching sense of belonging and then rights being stripped away because they weren't explicitly mentioned in the constitution or in amendments to the constitution. And that that's extremely dangerous. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Reflections on Buddhism on KSQD and ksqd.org. Venerable Tenzin Chokhi's journey into ordination began in the 1970s with an interest in meditation that flourished into a year studying Tibetan Buddhism in India and Nepal in 1991. After six years of long meditation retreat, Venerable Tenzin took monastic ordination with His Holiness the Dalai Lama in 2004. Venerable Tenzin is taught in Buddhist centers and prisons all around the world, and she's a certified teacher of Stanford University's Compassion Cultivation Training as well as the Cultivating Emotional Balance Program. You can find Venerable Tenzin online at unlockingtruehappiness.org, which features her teaching schedule, podcasts of the same name, and a number of useful resources. Again, that's unlockingtruehappiness.org. Dr. Richard Norman, who's the basically a professor in the UK, but also the vice president of Humanist UK, which is a secular organization, said in a paper, the challenge for a plural society containing diverse ethnic, racial, religious, linguistic, and cultural groups is to establish common principles without hindering the maintenance of diverse group identities. And I think Mm. that really does speak to this idea that we have to have some coherence as a nation in order for the nation to function. And yet there has to be respect for diversity of opinion and diversity of background and diversity of identity. Sort of the irony to me is that so often the freedom banner is held aloft sort of most vociferously by the same groups who are basically really what they mean is that I'm free to do whatever I want Mm -hmm. as our people who yeah. look like me, but you're not, if you, what you want to do differs from what I want to do, you're not free to do that. And basically then there's, you know, some convenient looking back to the past to, to yes. justify yeah. it. Yeah. And I think, you know, in line with that quote, it, it, rem- it really made a link for me to what his holiness, the Dalai Lama speaks often about, which is this idea of universal human values. Yes. And that so that we may have difference of background or difference of opinion or, you know, any number of the differences that make the the human tapestry so diverse. And yet there are some of the values that are universal. Can you speak a bit about what those 
what he means by that term and and how that might apply to this conversation. Yeah, and I think you know when when His Holiness and it's so beautiful because he always says, you know, we're all human beings. Like despite the superficial differences, we're all human beings. And I think there can be an othering, you know, about superficial differences of religion, race, gender identity, sexual, you know, sexual identities, things like that, that erases that common humanity. And so that's what he keeps pointing to over and over again as a way to unite us. If we can, and that's something in the, in the Stanford compassion training that I teach, which is one of the programs that his holiness explicitly requested to be developed and taught the idea of how we can extend empathy and compassion to others through a recognition of that common humanity. And so what really does unite us is common human feelings and needs. Like we sometimes, we you know, there's a diagram that we use sometimes in the field of conflict resolution and sometimes also in talking about these things, that's a model of an iceberg. And so above the waterline are positions, right? Above the waterline are views, positions, political positions, ideological positions, whatever it may be. But kind of below the waterline and much larger are feelings and needs. And so often we say when we're having conflict with someone, whether it's just an interpersonal conflict or a larger political conflict, can we look below the level of the positions to look at the underlying feelings and needs. And that's where the, you know, the connection to that common humanity is found. We may disagree in terms of our positions forever. So again, arguing about that, quoting statistics like we were just talking about, it's never going to move anything. But if we can see what are the underlying needs that person has, quite possibly it's a need that we can relate to as well. Maybe we're having, you know, we're manifesting the fulfillment of that need in a completely different way than the other person is, but it's a need that we can relate to too. The need for belonging. There's there's a, 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 a psychologist who works a lot with uh, trauma survivors. And when she talks about basic needs, and I love her framing, her name is Stacy Haynes, and she boils it down to needs for safety, needs for belonging, and needs for respect and dignity. You know, there's so many basic human needs, but I love that short list because I think when we're trying to understand even the position of someone else, can we see what is their need that they're trying to fulfill? You know, also one of the things that's below the the level of the waterline of the iceberg are values. Like what does that person value? I've mentioned a book probably in previous episodes of the of the show and also in classes by a, a psychologist called Jonathan Haidt, H-A-I-D-T is his last name, it's pronounced Haidt, called The Righteous Mind. And I read this book many years ago, and it was a complete game changer for me. He, it was written in, in, I think, 2011, and he's written several books since then on, on similar concepts. But this was the one that I read that really changed my way of thinking and he examined this thing called moral foundations theory 
in terms of the political left and right. And he said the political left and the political right see the other side as immoral, right? They see the other side as somehow not having any values or not having any morality. But he said, the problem is the values that each side are holding are completely different values. So if you're holding different values, you think the other side doesn't have any just because there isn't much overlap in the values. And so he quotes this, this uh, thing called moral foundations theory. And so there are a couple of core values mentioned by this theory. Care, care and harm is one value. Fairness and cheating is another value. Loyalty and betrayal, kind of the two, two sides of the coin, the two polarities, authority and subversion, and sanctity and degradation. And then height added liberty and oppression. And so he says for the political left, care and harm, liberty and oppression, and fairness and cheating are really, really important. For the political right, he said, all of them are important, but there's more emphasis on things like loyalty and betrayal. And he said that's where patriotism comes in. And we see that uh, in the January 6th insurrection, you know, people calling themselves the patriots. So there's this idea of patriotism and loyalty to some of these founding principles we've been talking about, authority and subversion. And then sanctity and degradation. So that's where this whole kind of far-right Christian nationalist idea comes in. So if we understand, oh, they're, you know, underlying these positions, are these moral values that these people are holding, you know, people on the other side of mine and yours, right, of, you know, this view of the far-right. And so he makes the point that, you know, often there's a, there's a statement made that, for example, rural and working class Americans are voting against their interests, meaning their economic interests. And you saw this after Donald Trump was elected. People were like, well, he didn't help all these people in the Rust Belt, and he's not even of that class at all. They're voting against their interests. But they're voting for their moral interests when they vote for these candidates that are upholding those moral values, they are voting for their more, because there's a lot of bewilderment on the side of the left of like, why are the people, you know, the majority of people, the working class in the rural, why isn't, for example, the Democratic Party appealing to them? Because that party isn't speaking to their moral values, even though they feel that they're speaking to the economic values. That's where the disconnect comes. So once again, whether it's politics or whether it's you know, a disagreement with a coworker or a family member. Can you see what the underlying needs, the interests, the values, the feelings, you know, below the level of the position? And that's the only way that these conversations will actually be productive and not talk about economic statistics. Isn't going to convince one of these rural and working class voters to vote for the Democratic Party if they don't feel that their underlying moral interests are being taken into account. And so there's so many people who have been talking about this. I, I really admire, there's a, a CNN uh, commentator, Van Jones, 
And he's done this very, very explicitly. He did this around the 2016 election, and he has various ventures where he's trying to kind of talk across the divide, you know, at this level of finding out what the underlying needs and interests and feelings and values are of the so-called, you know, other side. And I think that's the only way that this, you know, this divide is going to be bridged. Someone just last night was telling me a story, a student in the class shared a, a story that a friend had told her and her friend lived in Santa Cruz and, you know, Santa Cruz tends to be a very progressive place, but of course not uniformly. And this friend was having some work done on her house and she had an electrician coming doing some wiring to an addition or something she was building. So the electrician had come a couple of times. They hadn't talked much except about the project. And then at a certain point, the electrician expressed a political view that was quite different from the homeowner's view. And instead of getting upset or arguing with him or shutting him down or leaving the room or any of the responses that it's so easy for us to have when we're triggered by somebody with an opposite view, she expressed curiosity and she asked him, well, could you explain to me? I don't really get it. I don't really understand why people hold that view. And she said that he spoke for about 45 minutes, like really explained what was going on. She kept asking questions. She stayed present with the conversation. And at the end of the conversation, the electrician kind of had tears in his eyes. And he goes, thank you so much for listening to me. He said, all of my friends disagree with me. They don't want me to talk about it. They just tell me to shut up. Like, no one really wants to hear what I feel and what I think. And thank you so much for giving me the opportunity. Now, did either one change their political view? No, but they just met at that level of common humanity. So I think when we, when we look for that, when we have curiosity, when we have a little bit of humility, right? I think it's so easy for people on the political left to get so righteous we think, you know, I include you and I in that camp. We think all of our values are the right values to have, and these other people are immoral. But I think we can learn a lesson from Jonathan Haidt and his research, his holiness injunction to look for those levels of common humanity. And it may not be <clears throat> that everybody somehow magically meets in this perfect middle but it's the only way to even start the conversation. You know, we see our political landscape so polarized that you can predict any vote in the Senate strictly on party lines. How are we ever going to move? Everything gets stalled. You know, nothing is going to move forward until we as a country, as a community, as people just start to listen to each other you know, with curiosity and understanding and humility, I think that's the key. And it's the only way forward. Otherwise, we're just in a gridlock, as we've seen politically, or the Supreme Court starts taking over and making political decisions that isn't really their mandate, as we've seen in the last couple of weeks. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Reflections on Buddhism with Venerable Tenzin Choki on KSQD 90.7 FM and ksqd.org. You can find out more about Venerable Tenzin's upcoming classes by visiting her website at unlockingtruehappiness.org.
it is deeply unfortunate that self-righteousness is such a feel good in the yes. moment. <laughs> <laughs> there is something about it. It's so funny that feeling that we get, you know, of, oh, I'm on the side of right and might. <laughs> Me and my people are the right ones. I'll have to examine that. I wonder, you know, in the Cultivating Emotional Balance curriculum, we have a list, a list of 16 enjoyable emotions, and I'll have to revisit the list to see. I'm not, I'm not remembering right now if that specific emotion of self-righteousness shows up on that list or not. But it really is a specific flavor of an interesting, and maybe, um, you know, we talk about constructive and destructive emotions, not positive and negative. And so we say that you can have a destructive emotion that feels really good. And the classic example we give is schadenfreude, like rejoicing over the misfortune of others, but maybe self-righteousness is also in the camp of not such a constructive emotion, although it feels pretty good to have it. So, yeah. And maybe, as you say, curiosity is the antidote because I yeah. think if you're, I can see so much and, and sometimes in the conversations that I have this, you know, getting very much into this mode of not listening, but waiting to talk, which I think is so much yes. the, the dominant theme. And, you know, everyone's campaigning in the conversation and it just it's just totally yeah. self-defeating because all that happens is everyone ends up further entrenched in their yeah. mis misunderstanding of what the the other position is you summed this up really beautifully in this art, recently published article that you have in lookout santa cruz which for our listeners is well worth a look up online and as you said in this interview, you said the only way to move forward as a nation is in, and as human beings is to find the threads of common humanity that unite us. And I think you tell a really beautiful story about Maha El-Janaidi, who's the founder of the Islamics, Islamic Networks Group with which you're involved, where a very simple human conversation really changed a, a narrative in a way that I think this kind of self-righteousness wouldn't have. Would you mind sharing that story? Oh, it's such a beautiful story. Yeah. So Maha Eljanaidi, my friend and the founder of the Islamic Networks Group, which is an organization specifically started with the mandate to just try to educate people about Islam. It was founded even before 9-11, but stepped up its activities quite a lot after 9-11 to try and educate people because they were experiencing kind of similar to what we're experiencing. There were these fringe Muslim views that weren't really representative of the mainstream, just like we're seeing these fringe kind of Christian nationalist views. And so they wanted to educate people about like mainstream ideas of Islam. And then after several years, they were getting a request to have uh, interfaith. They, what they started was having Muslim speakers on invitation go into schools, businesses, nonprofits, and so forth to do presentations on various aspects of Islam to just schools, other things to, to just try to educate people a little bit, you know, and give them a more balanced view. And then several, several years later, 
they were asked by some of the same organizations, oh, we'd love to hear from all the different faith traditions. So they started what they call an Interfaith Speakers Bureau. And so I'm one of the volunteers for that and have been for about six years. So have been, you know, Maha's one of the speakers and one of the organizers, and we've gotten to be close. And at a recent event, I think it might have been a panel or it might have been a meeting. I'm on the local board of advisors of this organization also. She told the story. She is uh, has a master's in, in religious studies from Stanford, uh, Egyptian-American immigrant. She came over as a child with her family from Egypt, very elegant, you know, highly educated, Stanford educated. She wears a hijab, the traditional head covering. And so she's a well-known speaker. She's actually spoken at the White House at different events and been invited to different events there. Really well-known speaker. So before COVID, traveled extensively on these speaking engagements. And she tells a story of one of her pre-COVID, you know, speaking engagements, and she's getting on the plane to come home to California. I think it was about a two or three hour flight from somewhere. As she gets on the phone, she notices this middle-aged white woman in an aisle seat, looking really nervous, texting on her phone as she's going down the aisle. And it so happens that her seat is next to this woman. And so she thinks the woman's maybe nervous about flying. Maybe she hasn't flown before. So she starts engaging her in conversation, kind of to distract her and reassure her and go, oh, it's going to be fine. I fly all the time. Oh, what do you do? You know, they, they start chatting away. So they talk for the whole flight, you know, have this wonderful conversation. And just as the plane is getting ready to land, the woman says to her, I have a confession to make. And she said, when I saw you get on the plane in your hijab, looking, you know, obviously a Muslim, she goes, I panicked and I texted my daughter to ask her, should I get off the plane right now? And her daughter said, mom, I think you're overreacting. It's probably going to be fine. Stay on the plane. She goes, that's why I looked so nervous and why I was texting. And she goes, now you're the first Muslim I've ever met the first Muslim I've ever talked to, I'll never feel the same way. Like I, you know, we've had this lovely conversation. You know, you've explained to me a little bit about Islam. I'll never have the same stereotype that I had before. So it just shows the power of connecting human to human, even for one encounter. Like there's something about the way we're wired that we can't hold the same stereotypes so solidly after we actually meet and connect to the common humanity. So I think fostering these kinds of opportunities is the way forward. How can we do that? that that's simple. You know, that we can do. And little by little by little, it might just seem like a drop in the bucket. But that one conversation, Maha told that story, inspired so many of us. We've told that, you know, we've told the story of that conversation, right? So it's very, very powerful. Who knows? The woman on the plane may have shared that story with all of her relatives who might at least question the next time they see someone of a different religious identity, you know, or some other kind of identity. They might just have that moment of going, hey, I might not be right in my stereotype of what that person represents. So I think those are the kind of opportunities, if we can foster more and more of those, 
that's the way forward, not by quoting statistics and, you know, arguing intellectually. It's that feeling level of connection to common humanity that I think is the only way forward, really. And I think that this this power of stories, because, uh, you know, we didn't evolve to be persuaded of things by statistics or charts. We were, you know, we learned what we knew through through the power of of storytelling. And and it reminds me, and I don't remember the name. There's an amazing TED talk, which I think you had recommended to me. That's the the danger of the single story is basically the gist of it. Yeah. It's um, Chimamode Adichie, this well-known Nigerian writer. She's written many amazing books. And yeah, The Danger of a Single Story, the TED Talk. Like when we, and and this is part of our human nature too, to make sense of our reality. We've talked about this in previous episodes of the show. It's kind of the way that our perception works. We pick out salient details and then we make up you know, a mental concept of what it is that we're experiencing because we can't pay attention to every detail freshly in every moment. But the, the uh, I guess our mandate is balancing out so that when we're picking out those salient details, we don't come to the conclusion that that reinforces some incredibly biased stereotype that sees the person as a threat. But can we you know, now maybe the woman on the plane, the next time she sees a hijab, instead of going, oh, my God, should I get off the plane? She's like, I hope this woman sits next to me. And we have another amazing conversation about all the things, right? which would kind of be my idea when Maha was telling that story. I was like, oh, my gosh, if I saw somebody getting on a plane in some sort of religious garb, I would wish that they would sit next to me so we could talk about religion for three hours. That's much better than watching the in-flight movie, you know? So can we change that the way, you know, we can't change the way our mind works, but maybe it's balancing, maybe even substituting those mental concepts for something that is a little bit more curious a little bit more balanced, and I think more realistic, right? Because we get fed a lot of those stereotypes by the media that are completely out of balance and have nothing to do with, you know, reality. The reality is people like Maha sitting on the plane, not the terrorists, you know, like the woman thought. You're listening to Reflections on Buddhism with Venerable Tenzin Choki on 90.7 KSQD and KSQD.org on the web. So you have an event that you are co-curating coming up on Mm. Saturday, July 23rd. And this is an amazing opportunity for those listeners in the Santa Cruz area. Um, From 2 to 6 p.m. at the Santa Cruz Museum of Art and History. And again, the date is Saturday, uh, July 23rd. You have put together an event called Less let's talk about it, which is based on the, um, I think the original concept comes from a Danish concept of the human library project. And I'm wondering if you could just share a bit of how the project came to be and, and sort of what people could, could expect to experience if they stop by. Yeah. And so it all came about kind of interestingly, I'm doing some work for a local nonprofit called the conflict resolution center 
And we, you know, share articles of interest amongst the staff. And my coworker, Alaya Votier, who's the restorative justice coordinator at the Conflict Resolution Center, shared an article she came across about this project called the Human Library that started in Denmark and then spread to other countries in Northern Europe during the time where a lot of Syrian refugees were coming to these countries in Northern Europe and experiencing, you know, a lot of, a lot of stereotyping, the people were feeling threatened, the, you know, residents of the countries. And so this organization started hosting dialogues between, you know, one of these recent immigrants and one of the people who ancestors had been living in Denmark for generations to try and foster this kind of communication. And then it rapidly spread to many different countries, diversified in terms of the identities that were being represented. So my coworker shared an article about this venture, and I knew about a couple of other similar ones. There's one that's sponsored by StoryCorps called One Small Step. That's a similar thing, bringing two people together to have a conversation across political divides. So we quickly thought, you know, those of us, the staff of the Conflict Resolution Center, oh, we could host something like that here in Santa Cruz. Wouldn't that be amazing? And then Elia had the idea to partner with the Museum of Art and History that does not only just, you know, art exhibits, but a lot of community events. And so we met with Marla, one of the organizers at the museum, And she was convinced within like three sentences. She's like, that sounds fabulous. Let's do it. So the idea is we've got actually a lot of different activities, but the main, you know, kind of core activity are these one-to-one dialogues. So we're going to be having those. Some of the local people might be familiar with what's called the garden courtyard of the museum. There's an area with tables outside, kind of near the side entrance to the museum. So that's gonna be the space that we're gonna be using for these dialogues. We have volunteers, we're calling them dialogue partners, representing a multitude of identities. We have an unhoused person because homelessness is such an issue here in Santa Cruz. So we have, she's actually formally unhoused. She's had the experience of being unhoused. We have transgender identities, non-binary identities. Maha, my friend, is gonna be representing, um, you know, the Muslim identity along with a local Muslim woman and um, indigenous people, Black Lives Matter activists, Republican Trump supporters, we thought it was also important to have that identity, police officers, formerly incarcerated gang members. What else? So many diverse identities, an Asian American uh, refugee, actually a a war refugee is going to be there. And so the idea is that members of the public can come and request, the whole event is free, request a conversation with someone who represents one of these identities, just to have a conversation across, you know, differences out of curiosity to find what the experience of this person is. So we're really excited. It's sort of like a little four-hour experience of, you know, what this kind of thing could be. And we're hoping that it might even be something that is successful that we can continue having. There's already an interest to have a similar event in the South County down in Watsonville in the South County area. So this is our pilot of the event. You know, all these ways of exploring identity, our own 
and others. And, you know, we just are suggesting that people come with a lot of curiosity. We have, we're going to have two listening, what we're calling listening booths, where people can just have a conversation with a trained community mediator about whatever they want and be met with empathetic, active listening. Like you mentioned earlier in the show, Matthew, you said, you know, often when we're having a conversation, we're rehearsing what we're going to say next, or we're just distracted by our rebuttal. It's so rare to be met with this kind of deep, active, empathetic listening and so we're going to have an opportunity that anybody from can walk in off the street and have a conversation with one of these conversation partners at the listening booths. So we're really hoping that this, you know, will be a successful event. I really invite all of the all of the listeners to come again between two and six in the atrium in the garden courtyard of the museum, completely free event. And you can engage in as many or as little of the activities as, as you choose for that event. And again, the date for that is Saturday, July 23rd. July 23rd, yes. Well, Venerable, it has been an enjoyable conversation. I hope that we have uh, maintained our agreement to stay. <laughs> <laughs> open-minded so. and open-hearted during the conversation and um yes thank you for for a uh, mind-opening conversation this month thank you so much matthew thank you for your questions and yes i i hope so too you know it's uh, you know we all come from our own kind of social positioning and ideological positioning i hope we haven't offended anyone on the political, you know, the political side that we don't represent, certainly don't mean to be offensive to anyone who identifies as Christian. We're just kind of grappling with these, with these, uh, you know, problems of this divide that we all acknowledge. So we ask for forgiveness and hope that we haven't caused any offense to anyone with this episode. Thanks for listening to Reflections on Buddhism. You can find all our past episodes at ksqd.org, and you can learn more about Venerable Tenzin's upcoming classes and events, as well as subscribe to her podcast at unlockingtruehappiness.org. Again, that's unlockingtruehappiness.org.